Chapter 15 begins with Count Ilya Rostov inviting the men to his drawing room to talk politics and smoke cigars. It's noted that the men are waiting for one of society's most famous local women, Maria or Maria Dmitrievna, and her French nickname is Le Terrible Dragon, or the Terrible Dragon. She's an opinionated widow, and she's even more like the Countess Violet Crawley of Downton Abbey than Princess Anna Drubitskaya. She's described as frank, cutting, humorous, and wise. She always has the right saying for the moment and has great respect of all the men. She is also the young Natasha Rostov's godmother. The political talk among the men was focused on the Manifesto of War issued by Emperor Alexander and the current recruitment effort to send troops off to fight Napoleon in European lands, namely outside Russia. It's filled with the bravado that often goes into planning for war when the bodies are not yet coming back. After experiencing an invasion or sending soldiers off to one, the general attitude is much different. When there hasn't been a war for some time, there's almost like something builds up, is festering within. There's some level of eagerness or pull towards war. And that may be one of the great points of war and peace. That these two states dance in an endless ballet across time. With respect to war, the more colorful and powerful term, to use German philosopher and theologian Rudolf Otto's phrase, there is a mysterium tremendum et fascinas. Something thrilling and fearful about war, but fascinating in its seduction. As if war is a god, just like Ares, the ancient Greek god of war, or the spirit of battle that he encompassed. Getting back to the drawing room of Count Ilya Rostov, the good-natured host is playfully starting or encouraging an argument between the two people he is seated between. This is the young officer, Lieutenant Alphonse Berg, and an old bachelor who has the nickname Shinshin. Lieutenant Berg has been spoken about before. He does have some level of interest in Vera Rostov. He's also fulfilling another role in that he is going to be Boris's chaperone to his own regiment in the Imperial Guard. Shinshin is described as an old bachelor who likes to dress in the height of young men's fashion. His complexion is noted to be pale or sallow, and he's also described as clean-shaven. Both of these characters are described as thinking that they're quite superior in thought to their contemporaries. Shinshin is also a distant relative of Countess Rostov. Berg is speaking about himself and his prospects in the military. He's announcing how he plans to profit from the experience. He believes there's more money and opportunity in the infantry as opposed to the cavalry. He's the type of guy who seems to get a joy in telling you about his job and all the opportunities when most people around could care less. Berg also announces that in the infantry, there is quite a possibility that one of his superiors, such as a captain, could fall victim to the war and he could receive an advancement. He seems oblivious that he could be right in line for the same fate. It's noted that Berg is transferring to a prestigious infantry unit called the Lifeguards. Alphonse Berg has been mentioned a few times as well as his German ancestry. There's also another unnamed character 
a colonel who is noted to be speaking in a German accent while indicating great excitement to be fighting against Napoleon for the Emperor of Russia. And the unfamiliar reader might ask, why is there this presence of Germans, at least as far as ancestry and ethnicity, in the Russian army? It brings up a level of immigration many are very unfamiliar with. There's also, if you look far back enough, an intertwined history between those from German-speaking lands and those who lived in areas that today we know as Russia, Ukraine, Lithuania, and a few other Eastern Bloc countries. There was quite a bit of immigration flow from German lands to Russian lands in the 15th and 16th centuries, partly due to many German-speaking people wanting to avoid seemingly never-ending wars that surrounded them. And if you go back before that, German knights during the Crusades, as part of their missions, were converting pagan tribes in the Baltics and received a level of help from those who lived in Moscow or Kiev. And just like English royalty, a great number of czars or Russian royalty was of German stock, as well as other European ethnicities, such as Danish. In the 1700s, many Germans with skills in science, I'm talking physicians, pharmacists, goldsmiths, musicians, theater actors, moved east and became prominent citizens in the Russian aristocracy. They were both invited by the Tsar, very willing to move, and would set up German towns. Just as in New York or San Francisco, there are famous Chinatowns. In German towns, the population maintained their own churches, other traditions, they maintained their own European style of dress, and own architecture with respect to their homes and gardens. Interestingly, a quote attributed to Peter the Great was, Not nobility, or where born, but talent. That makes a person's name in this land countries on the move wanting to progress historically will be very accepting of highly skilled immigrants. Additionally, the Russian Imperial Army and their divisions were modeled on the German system, and so was much of the everyday government bureaucracy. Catherine the Great was ethnically German, and she came into full power in 1762. Her invitation allowed Europeans to settle with a relocation allowance, which had exemptions from certain taxes and even military duty. This was a point where the country needed, as opposed to skilled laborers, more in the agricultural market. Europe had been so filled with war that whether it was to go east to the Russian Empire or to the New World, many were happy to leave. Around the time the beginning of War and Peace is set, around 1804, Emperor Alexander had invited those ethnically German to settle on vacant lands near the Volga River. Some went to areas that are in Ukraine, including the disputed territory of Crimea, and many adopted ways much more Ukrainian than Russian. Once one generation settles, then future ones often become more part of the land and are willing to serve it, in places like the military, which is why we find a character like Lieutenant Alphonse Berg. And that is a superficial look at the history between the two lands. Now the rest of the chapter deals with imperial splendor often depicted in television or movie depictions of the book. This is the serving and enjoyment of the Rostov dinner.
First, it's time for the guests to march in two by two. It's noted that Pierre had arrived and was in the way of everybody trying to get by him to the dining area. And when I say dining area, this is an immense and extravagant space. Pierre had some quick words with the Countess, Countess Rostov, and then he ran into Le Terrible Dragon. First, she arrived at the door and wished health and happiness to everybody around. She runs into young Natasha Rostov and calls her her little Cossack, her customary nickname for her. She gives her a gift, a pair of beautiful pear-shaped earrings. It's a birthday gift. Then she runs into Pierre and shames him in a way that only she can. She basically says, shame on you for your conduct in St. Petersburg. This with your father on his deathbed. By now, the procession to their dining seats is in full effect. Of note, Nikolai Rostov is paired with Julie Karagin. Lieutenant Berg is with Vera. Old Anna Drubetskaya is with Shinshin. And the terrible dragon, she's with the ethnically German colonel, who's in the Russian army, who Nikolai is going to travel off to the front with. There's music accompanying the march, the kids come in with their tutors, it's quite a show. Most of the men went to one end of the table, where Count Rostov sat, and the women went to the other, where Countess Rostov was located. Pierre wound up seated next to Boris, and the two were building their relationship through friendly conversation. It's described that the place hummed with conversation and the sounds of silverware. There seemed to be endless courses, which Pierre seems to have been enjoying the most. The dishes included fruit, soup, game, various wines, dessert. It was a sumptuous feast. Natasha was eyeing Boris with the love you could expect from a teenager. But at times, and perhaps an instance of foreshadowing, she also looked at Pierre in a similar manner. The demure and the devoted Sonia was in the agony of jealousy as she had to watch Julie Karagin and Nikolai sit next to one another and very much appear to enjoy each other's company. There's more to come in the next chapter on this dinner, but it is a beautiful scene to visualize more than read about or hear about in a podcast.